Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from The Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we covered the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. And now we're here to provide quick daily updates on Alec Murdoch's highly anticipated double murder trial in Colleton County. Hi, welcome to Understand Murdoch. My name is Nathan Stevens. I'm here with Jocelyn. And Jocelyn, we've entered the sixth week of this trial. Yeah, it's pretty hard to believe. I understand the defense team has rested its case. We're going to discuss that and what it means in terms of the next steps in the trial. But first, let's break down the last few witnesses jurors heard from today. Sure. The first two witnesses were both experts, and their testimony kind of informed the other. So we heard first from Dr. Jonathan Eisenstadt, and he's a forensic psychologist, and he actually attended the same medical school as Dr. Ellen Reimer. She's the pathologist at the Medical University of South Carolina who had performed the official autopsies on Maggie and Paul. And jurors already heard her testify, correct? That's right. Prosecutors had called her as one of their witnesses. So if jurors already heard from a pathologist in this case, why would the defense want to call another one? Well, defense attorneys actually hired Dr. Eisenstadt to conduct an independent review of the case and Dr. Reimer's work. And he used to be the chief medical examiner for the state of Georgia, but he now works full time at his private contract company. Okay. Did his findings differ from the MUSC pathologist? A bit. So Dr. Eisenstadt first explained Maggie's injuries. And remember that she suffered five gunshot wounds, all from a rifle. The first three of them were non-fatal, and he agreed with Dr. Reimer's findings on all of those. But Maggie also suffered two final gunshot wounds, and both of them would have been immediately fatal. Dr. Eisenstadt believes she was doubled over in pain when she was shot in the back right of her head with the bullet traveling down her body and then into her neck and back. And he thinks that the second fatal wound was also fired at this same downward trajectory, but the second one hit the left side of her chin and jaw area before continuing down into her chest. And how does this differ from what Dr. Reimer found? Well, she had testified that the second shot hit Maggie at an upward trajectory, meaning that it would have entered her chest before hitting her chin. So just kind of reversing the, I guess, entrance and exit wounds. Okay. What about Paul? So remember, Paul suffered two gunshot wounds. The first non-fatal wound was fired from close range and hit his chest. Dr. Eisenstadt didn't dispute any of these findings, but His opinion of Paul's second wound is vastly different from Dr. Reimer's. She had previously testified that the second fatal shot struck Paul's left shoulder first before entering his neck and then exiting from the right side of his skull, causing his head to explode. And what did Dr. Eisenstadt say? Well, he said that this second shot was absolutely a contact gunshot wound to Paul's head meaning the shooter would have actually pressed the barrel of the shotgun up against his head and fired. And Dr. Eisenstadt said he believes both Maggie and Paul's deaths are homicides, so 
if Paul suffered a contact gunshot wound to his head, this would essentially be an execution-style killing. And didn't defense attorneys ask Dr. Reimer whether she thought Paul had suffered a contact gunshot wound? They did. And she seemed very confident in her findings about that, you know, this was not a contact wound. But, you know, I have to say, Dr. Eisenstadt also was extremely sure of himself on the stand. And these are two highly educated, very experienced forensic pathologists. So to see their opinions on this one gunshot wound differ this much is really interesting. Okay. You mentioned a second expert witness. Can you tell us about him? Sure. So defense attorneys also questioned a man named Tim Palmbach, who's a Connecticut-based forensic scientist. And he was also hired to review the case, but he was tasked mostly with crime scene reconstruction and evidence analysis. And what did he discover? So Palmbach was hired before Dr. Eisenstadt, and he actually recommended that defense attorneys retain their own pathologist to review the case. So that's how they wound up with Dr. Eisenstadt. And Palmbach said that when he got a hold of the case files, he immediately concluded that the second fatal shot Paul had suffered was a contact gunshot wound to his head. And how did he come to that conclusion? Well, as prosecutors pointed out, Palmbach isn't a doctor. So he formed this opinion just by examining crime scene photos, autopsy photos, and other evidence. We know Paul's head literally exploded from the force of that gunshot blast. Everyone agrees on that. And several witnesses have testified that blood, brain matter, and other bodily fluids were found all over the feed room where he was killed. But Palmbach said he also noticed where biological materials weren't, and that this was equally as important. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So Palmbach described how for you know, this to be a contact gunshot wound to Paul's head, which remember essentially would mean execution style, the shooter would have had to have been very close to Paul. And they would have been covered, at least on their upper body and head, in all this gore. And did Palmbach say anything about how Maggie might have been killed? He did. He believes Maggie was facing her attacker throughout the entire shooting, though evidence suggests that she moved at some point during the attack. And he also believes she was shot after Paul, but it would have happened in very quick succession. And that brings us to our next point. Defense attorneys asked Palmbach about the number of shooters he believes carried out the killings. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this was a pretty big moment for Alex's defense team. So Palmbach was kind of the first witness to dive into the two-shooter theory, which defense attorneys have hinted at a few times, but never explored it in full. And why does he believe there were two shooters? Well, he just said that the totality of the evidence points to this type of scenario. So, for instance, he described in pretty graphic detail Paul's second gunshot wound. Palmbach testified it would have taken this shooter at least some time to recover. You know, they've just been sprayed all over with bodily fluids. And Palmbach hypothesized that the shooter might have even been hit themselves with some shot shells. So he's basically saying Paul Shooter couldn't have carried out this attack and quickly pivoted to killing Maggie next. That's right. And it's also important to note that Maggie and Paul were killed with two different types of weapons, a rifle and a shotgun. These are both long guns, so they're pretty cumbersome. Palmbach said he didn't think one person could handle both weapons at the same time, 
and carry out these two effective attacks. Because we have to remember that whoever killed Maggie and Paul have to be pretty good shots just in terms of aim and all that. Okay. Can you tell us about the defense team's final witness? Sure. So the last person that defense attorneys called to the stand was John Marvin Murdoch, and he's Alec's younger brother. He's been in the courtroom this whole time, right? Yeah, he's been in the courtroom, if not every day of the trial, then I think nearly every day. And his testimony, I found very compelling. Can you break it down for us? Yeah. So for one, John Marvin and Paul were very close. Paul was actually working for one of John Marvin's equipment companies at the time. So they were together the day Paul died. And John Marvin got very emotional on the stand as he described their relationship, but also as he recalled the days after June 7th, 2021. John Marvin said he'd actually returned to Moselle the next morning, so the 8th. And he said he was the first person to come back after the crime scene had been cleared. And as other witnesses have testified, investigators didn't clean up the scene before they released it. So in this very devastating moment on the stand, John Marvin described how he'd gone to the kennels just to get some closure. You know, he said he wanted to see it for himself. And then he noticed that nothing had been cleaned up. So he decided that he would be the one to do it. Why is that? He said he felt like he owed it to Paul. And John Marvin also testified about a promise he made to his nephew that morning as he was literally cleaning up pieces of his skull and tissue and blood. What was the promise? That he'd find out who did this to him. And then defense attorney Jim Griffin asked whether John Marvin had found out yet. And he said he had not. Does this mean John Marvin doesn't think his brother killed Maggie and Paul? I think that's what it seems like based on his testimony. It was a really powerful moment, especially because he also testified that he had no idea about Alex's opioid addiction until September 2021, when the whole world basically found out. And he also acknowledged Alec had lied to investigators by not telling him that he was down at the kennels just minutes before prosecutors believe Maggie and Paul were shot. And did John Marvin know that? No, not until investigators played him the video that was found on Paul's phone. Did John Marvin discuss anything else during his testimony? Yeah, a couple of things. He talked about Alec's great relationships with Buster, Paul, and Maggie, and he described Alec as absolutely distraught in the wake of the slayings. He, at one point, actually said that he'd have to invent a new word if he wanted to describe just how inconsolable his brother was at the time. And did defense attorneys ask John Marvin about the blue raincoat? They did. Can you remind us about all of that? Yeah. So, and when investigators searched the Almeida property, which belongs to Alec and John Marvin's parents, they had seized a large blue raincoat from one of the upstairs closets. The entire inside of the jacket had tested positive for gunshot residue. And a witness who was taking care of Alec's mother previously testified that she saw him carry a blue bundle into the house early one morning after the killings. So prosecutors believe Alec used the coat to stash weapons. Yeah, that's what it seems like. But investigators searched the house in September 2021, so several months after the killings. And 
John Marvin said he was present for this search and that investigators told him they'd discovered a jacket somewhere in the back of the property, but they didn't let him see it that day. Wait, I I thought investigators said they found it inside a closet. That's what several of them have testified to in court. And John Marvin said that later, when he went back for another interview with investigators, they showed him a photo of the jacket this time to see if he would recognize it. John Marvin said he'd never seen it before, but investigators apparently told him this time they'd found it in a closet. And he said he's never been given an explanation for why he was apparently told two different things. Okay, so after John Marvin's testimony, the defense rested its case. That's right. Tell us what we can expect next. When will jurors begin deliberating? Well, a lot still has to happen between now and then. I know everyone, including myself, is eager for some sort of timeline, but it's still difficult to predict. Tomorrow, prosecutors will have the chance to call reply witnesses, and these are people who can testify to pretty much anything that came up during the defense's case. Do we know how many they'll call? Well, Creighton Waters, the lead prosecutor, said today that he plans to call at least four, maybe five. And what about after all of that? So defense attorneys actually asked Judge Clifton Newman today if he'd allow the jurors to take a trip out to Moselle to see the crime scene and tour the property for themselves. Wow. Is that something that's typically done? No, I don't think it happens all that often, but I do know Judge Newman allowed it in at least one other high-profile murder case that he presided over. Do prosecutors want this visit to happen? No, Waters objected. He said Moselle looks a lot different today than it did in June 2021, and that could be misleading. It kind of seemed like he felt it wouldn't be a very useful exercise for jurors. And what did the judge decide? He agreed with defense attorneys. So after the state finishes calling their reply witnesses, jurors will go out to Moselle. And only the jurors, Judge Newman, attorneys from both sides, and a court reporter will be allowed to go on the trip. So There won't be any sort of testimony offered or even discussion among the jurors as they're not allowed to talk about the case until deliberations begin. Got it. And what will happen after this visit? Well, both defense attorneys and prosecutors will have the chance to present their closing arguments, which could take quite some time. Then Judge Newman will formally charge the jurors with their task of deciding a verdict. And once all that has been done, they'll get to start deliberating. Jocelyn, thank you as always. Thanks, Nathan. For more in-depth coverage of this trial, as well as the latest news on the Murdoch story at large, stay tuned to postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. You can find us on Twitter at Post and Courier.